0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. We are serving up a spectacular show for you today. Bacha Angar Sargan is back with us to kick off the week. So nice to see you, Bacha.
1: It's so great to be here with you, Robbie. Thank you for having me. And we have a great lineup today. Liz Wolf will break down how fact checkers are covering for the White House's IRS claims. And Dr. Pyle Patel will discuss a polio outbreak happening in New York's wastewater.
0: But first, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has railed against woke ideology as he campaigned for Republicans in Pennsylvania and Ohio over the weekend.
2: We can't just stand idly by while why, why woke ideology ravages every institution in our society. We must fight the woke in our schools. We must fight the woke in our businesses. We must fight the woke in government agencies. We can never, ever surrender to woke ideology. And I'll tell you this, the state of Florida is where woke goes to die.
0: Tomorrow, Florida will hold elections for school board races, which typically... Don't receive much attention, but according to Business Insider, DeSantis has taken note of the energy behind these local elections and has moved to restrict school curriculum on race, gender, and sexual orientation.
1: Meanwhile, former Florida state attorney Andrew Warren, who is currently suing DeSantis for suspending him, had this to say on MSNBC.
2: And we should be so concerned for the sake of our democracy for people who are only willing to follow the rule of law and only willing to follow the Constitution when it's convenient, who are only willing to do so when it serves their own political interests, when it fits with their own political narrative. You know, true patriots support the rule of law and the Constitution at all times,
0: and that's not what's happening here. You know, it's interesting though, for some of this, I feel like that is what's happening. Um, It's clear that so many voters um, not just conservatives, but many independents, some people who would vote Democrat on other issues, agree that, you know, whatever you want to call it, woke is a very funny word, but whatever you, you want to call it, this uh, identity politics, political correctness, the overemphasis on using perfect language relating to sex and gender, et cetera, uh, that people, majorities of people don't want this being taught in schools uh, or in a sort of activist, you know, you're forced to comply with it sort of way for young kids. Uh, and they don't want it infecting uh, the government. And even at, even as consumers, as customers, they reject, they've rejected it to some extent when businesses do it, when, you know, when uh, programming decisions are being made by Netflix or HBO or something, or Disney uh, on, a, on, on a let's not offend people kind of way. You know, like the people are speaking, as consumers, it, it, to some degree as par- participants in a democratic voter system, and they are saying they don't like it, and that's, that's, part, of, that's part of Ron DeSantis' success, right?
1: Yeah, so I, I I sort of there is two sides to this, right? On the one hand, certainly the fight on wokeness can veer into sketchy First Amendment territory. On the yes. other hand, we are all perfectly comfortable saying there are certain things you cannot say in the classroom, you cannot say in the workplace, and we understand that the, you know those restrictions are actually part of having you know a free and open society, right? So there is a push and pull here. I have not seen Desantis yet. Um, veer too far, in, uh, you know, onto this to the stage of you know, uh, you know, co- coming into conflict with the First Amendment. But of course, we should be, mm-hmm. you know, on the lookout for that potentially. I want to define what, how I define wokeness, and then I want you to define it, Robbie, because mm-hmm. that, that is a critique that a lot of people on the left will often say, like, oh, you just use wokeness when you don't want to talk about important issues of race and gender and sexuality. But I don't think that's that's not how I define it. I define it as, you know, the impulse that makes white liberals a study in 2018 found the yale study that white liberals dumb down their vocabulary when talking to hmm. black and hispanic americans right the impulse that makes you see people of color or people who have a different sexuality or sexual orientation or gender identity uh, uh, than you uh, makes you see them as inherently disempowered inherently marginalized inherently having less agency than you and thus your entire um, uh, you know approach to them should be one of a sort of patronizing attempt to uplift them, right? That's the sort of equity model, right? That people coming in, we're not all coming in with the same advantages and therefore we have to amend society to cater to the marginalized in a way that is, you know, I think very problematic constitutionally, certainly very problematic from the point of view of what Dr. King's vision for America was. And I think it's very bad. And so when I see DeSantis um, standing up to this, I, I agree with you Robbie. I think a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle um, they really reject this viewpoint which comes straight out of academia and is very alien to the the progress that we've made as a nation in terms of overcoming things like racism and sexism. You know of course we haven't fully overcome these things, but we' we're, we're, we're getting really close and we've made oh. such progress and you know the, the this is really the, the woke ideology to me is really overreach on the part of the left beyond um, the vision that Dr. King and that our constitution laid out, right? That we've been sort of progressing towards. How do you define wokeness?
0: Yeah, I I similarly think of it as an ideology that places a high degree of importance on correcting language relating to race and gender. I think more broadly, we're talking about people, about an academic philosophy that sees people mostly as, like the unit of the person is is a is oppression you are a set of overlapping oppression categories and that describes how you are it's not enough to be an individual you are well what is your racial category what is your gender identity how have you been oppressed because of your sexuality or your age or your ability status or your access to material wealth and and or your mental health and all of those things together makes you who you are and i think it's a very Kind of sad way of looking at people and also promotes uh, what I've noticed in activist circles, especially on college campuses. It encourages people to look for oppression, to look for ways in which they've been deprivileged, in order because being the most oppressed and the most deprivileged gives you authority and power in these circles. So people go looking for reasons to describe themselves as miserable in, 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 in effect. And, act, and, and this is why. There's so much of this kind of I think mental health trauma language and, and and actual like feigned mental health among among young people among very progressive young people because Describing yourself that way is one is, is a way to appeal to these oppression narratives. Say, well, I'm I'm depressed. I suffer from post-traumatic stress, etc. And it's not a no uh, no dynamic that causes people to want to associate themselves with mental illness. <laughs> it's by definition not healthy. So that's my view of it.
1: Yeah, it's very sad because I think a lot of them actually do end up manifesting real symptoms of mental illness because of exactly the, the what you're describing. That view of you know you are defined by your oppression, right? That sort of mm-hmm. comes out of that um, you know Hegelian, Marxist, critical theory, critical race theory academic way of thinking that does reduce, you know, the world into oppressor versus oppressed. You know, and on that topic of critical race theory, DeSantis explained to his followers the reasoning for his ban. Let's watch that.
2: But I think the left tries to portray American history As it being founded because of slavery, and that this was something that you know the founders were really holding up about what their the country was about. Actually, a lot of them were embarrassed that this was something that was there. Even people like Washington, who owned slaves, freed slaves. Jefferson would always, you know, he agonized about slavery, and I know he participated in it, but he recognized that it was wrong. So intellectually, you had very few of the revolutionary generation make a compelling positive case for slavery. What these people, though, are doing on the left they're basically taking the position Stephen Douglas took mm. when he debated Lincoln in 1858. I mean, Douglas was saying, <laughs> hey, no, the slavery, uh, the Constitution is about slavery. And he supported the Dred Scott decision. Lincoln was on the other side of that. He said this was a country conceived in liberty. It doesn't happen overnight. This is a fight that you have to keep fighting. Uh, but that's what he believed. So we're teaching the accurate history, and we're basically teaching it from the perspective of a Lincoln or a Frederick Douglass rather than a Stephen Douglas.
1: Hmm. it's so hard you can't picture trump ever talking that way you know what i mean it's like just to be so steeped in our history and in these conversations um you know so one school district though is in florida's palm beach county was reportedly reviewing their classroom books ahead of the school year for quote sexism racism and oppression as part of the district's effort to comply Mm. with state laws right so here you see again how this can become problematic right when you have you know um you know a really good idea let 's say I think we, we agree right you know the idea of like limiting the impact of wokeness, but then you end up having sort of like down down ballot lower tier administrators trying to implement this right, and you get things that maybe are not uh, you know like as, as a high concept high level as one would want
0: well and and I should note i mean the the uh, a federal judge has block this happened a few days ago did block um, the implementation of florida 's stop woke act it 's literally called that. On grounds that, it does run up against the First Amendment, uh, and I I knew this was going to be an issue, when you're telling businesses, you know, what they can put Mm -hmm. in their training materials. The Businesses are private entities, so the government limiting their speech is such an obvious violation of the First Amendment. Conservatives really got to get that through their head. It's, it's funny, and it's both funny and frustrating, to kind of reteach some Republicans that, look, you might not like what these companies do. I criticize them all the time as well. But by definition, what the First Amendment prohibits is exactly what you're doing, which is the government telling them. You know, So that's different for, if we're talking about the government itself, we can limit wokeness or identity politics or whatever we're calling it. The schools is somewhere in the middle because it's fraught. Uh, Because there are, you know, students have First Amendment rights and there's some, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, academic freedom in in colleges very strongly that there's a tradition of that. In K through 12, it's a little less uh, clearly defined by law. So there's so that's where there's going to be debates over. I think the better approach rather than, you know, Republicans seizing control of government and then forcing all these entities to not do problematic speech or speech they don't like, that requires you to win like every time, right? Rather than do that, we should, we should just get rid of government agencies that aren't, that aren't important anyway, or just give people, uh, to the extent it's a problem in schools, I would just give kids more options, like can't do more school choice, more vouchers, more of those things that let, instead of you know, trying to control every school and say they have to teach this, just say, you know, parents who say, this school, I don't like what they teach, Good go to this other school. you can get whatever you know money the, the state's investing your tax dollars on this school using that school instead that's a better th- that doesn't require us to like win every election because then all these things become these zero sum contests where you have to win every time over and over again and I, I'd rather change the system
1: yeah I, I think it's interesting to me yeah, I look at this less as um, a, a legislative victory than a political victory, mm-hmm. right? What DeSantis is doing is laying out an alternative to the woke capture of our institutions by right. the left. And in that sense, he doesn't have to win, right? If the legislature comes down on him and says, you can't do this, he still won, right? He still took that position. Politically, and yes. It, exactly. Yes, absolutely. He absolutely. Took, took that stand and said, look, this is, we're not gonna sit passively by, right? You know, it doesn't have to win every time. And um, it is interesting because if you look at what Trump did, he banned, um, DEI trainings within government institutions, right? So it was a much more limited, right, but successful legislatively, right, uh, attempt to control this. Um, Whereas on the other hand, you have DeSantis taking a much bigger swing. Um, But I I do think that this has been a big um, political windfall for him. And he doesn't have to win every time to make the statement that this is where we're at.
0: Well, on the opposite side of the spectrum, New York Governor Kathy Hochul recently signed a new law that bans gendered language for professions. "Quote: Jobs have no gender, but unfortunately, many of our state's laws still use gendered language." The bill reads and replaces words like councilman or councilmen to council members or council uh, to council member or council member instead of council, you know, councilman, councilwoman. Um, look, I, I <laughs> this is kind of I think it's kind of silly, um, and, and to the extent they're always making, so I saw one of the changes was from inmate to incarcerated persons. That just seems silly because it takes so much longer to say and write that, and the the point of language is to you know, preserve time, to preserve meaning and preserve time. If You make every, every word like, you know, 10 syllables longer, um, you're not necessarily doing a lot of good. That said, some of these, I mean, I don't, sure, they're outdated statutes. I guess I don't really care if they get changed. I, I don't care either way. And I think it'd be very <laughs> silly to say this is an important pressing issue for the government to tackle and address. But fine, if they want to change what the, you know, what the term is in some old documents, I don't really care, what do you think?
1: I remember when I first read the 1619 Project, and they had made the decision to refer to slaves as enslaved persons. And I remember thinking, that's a really important shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the work that's done when you add the word person to enslaved person, I think is just it's really important. It really reminds you every time you discuss this, that these were people whose lives were stolen from them and whose personhood was stolen from them, right? And and, and you don't recapitulate that theft in speaking about it. Um, and I remember thinking, I'm so glad that this happened. And now you're seeing more and more people sort of speaking that way. I try to make sure that I speak that way. I do it in my writing. And you're seeing more and more people across the political spectrum um, speaking in that way. And I think that that kind of a cultural, you know. A cultural shift is very, very important. I don't know if you can have the same achieve the same effect by imposing it from above, right? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. not gonna be reading documents that say, you know, from the right, like internal government documents about inmates versus um, incarcerated persons. But, um, you know, so like you, I feel like there's sort of, you know, I could see both sides of this, but um, I I really, you know, if you had said to me before, oh, we should change the way we talk about slaves. I don't know that I would have said, oh yes, that's very important. But now that I sort of saw the impact it had on my own Mm -hmm. writing, on my own thinking, you know, I'm more sympathetic to, to efforts to sort of give people back their humanity, um, you know, in little ways.
0: I like that change. I agree with you on that one. I'm just wary overall of this kind of evolution. It's something George, uh, George Carlin, the comedian, warned about in a really great um, uh, routine that I've, I've referenced, that I think I've played part of on, on the show before, where he talks about how um, it, you know, the, 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 uh, the combat condition that started out as shell shock over time has become a post-traumatic stress disorder (laughs) so the long you make it longer make it like softer make it sound less harsh and he thinks there's something about not then treating the actual problem if you feel like you've you've gotten Mm -hmm. the wording more more precise and more elaborate um, which I thought was a, a good a good lesson to learn. so yeah, absolutely. We'll see about some if, of these. If, if
1: that's your number one issue is thinking about the words and the terms as opposed to the issues themselves. right. You do risk so I, I'm just thinking to myself, like, are we being hypocrites here saying, you know what DeSantis is doing is important in fighting wokeness, right? Mm-hmm. But what Ho is doing is not important in terms of her sort of try so so I'm wary of that, right? Um, you know, this question of whether things should be happening legislatively or politically.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. Stay with us. Yes, we will. Baccio, what's on your radar?
1: If I told you the U.S. had $10 billion lying around to be spent on an important project, I'm sure that each of you could come up with something worthy. Maybe we split it up and give 10 million families a thousand bucks each to help with gas and groceries during this difficult time. Maybe we use it to invest in building another semiconductor fab, reshoring, manufacturing, and investing in national security. Maybe you'd want to see that money go toward pay raises for nurses' aides doing sacred, backbreaking work caring for the elderly, or for hiring bonuses for teachers in public schools, or police recruitment and training, or drug rehab programs, which are prohibitively expensive. I wonder, though, how many Americans would put sending drones to Ukraine on their list? And yet, that is exactly what the U.S. government has done. The total amount of military assistance the U.S. has shipped to Ukraine since Russia invaded in February is now $10.6 billion. This includes the latest shipment of $775 million worth of mine resistance vehicles, drones and new missile systems. This latest package is the 19th one we're sending. Defense officials said they are looking at ways to, quote, potentially help Ukraine retake more territory from the Russians. We will continue to consult with the Ukrainians to make sure that we are providing them what they need when they need it, a senior defense official told The Wall Street Journal on Friday. Really? What about what we need when we need it? What exactly is our national interest in helping Ukraine retake more territory from the Russians? If it were of such national interest that Crimea or the Donbas region belonged to Ukraine instead of Russia or Russia-backed separatists, surely we would have gotten involved in the conflict back when it began in 2014. That's when Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded and annexed the Crimean Peninsula, a move that a referendum found was popular among Crimeans, though the referendum was contested by the international community. Then there's the Donbas region in eastern Ukraine after the 2014 Euromaidan revolution that ousted the pro-Russia prime minister, Viktor Yanukovych. Massive pro-Russia protests swept eastern Ukraine, home to many ethnic Russians. These protests escalated into a war in the Donbas where Russia-backed separatists in Donetsk and Lugansk eventually took control and seceded from Ukraine, becoming self-declared republics with overwhelming support from the local populations, at least at the time the separatist republics and Ukraine signed what's called the Minsk protocol, which called for the reintegration of the Donbass into Ukraine, but with a level of autonomy. And that agreement, of course, Putin essentially erased when he recognized the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk just before invading Ukraine in February of this year. But this is a crucial point. Putin didn't recognize the Donbass as part of Russia, but rather as an independent buffer zone between Russia and Ukraine more importantly, Putin's recognition of the separatist republics as independent was a recognition of the status quo. Donetsk and Lugansk were independent in February of this year. What exactly is the U.S. national interest in paying $10 billion to change that status quo? I understand wanting to support our allies, but if the argument is that Putin's invasion of Ukraine was evil because of the lives lost, an argument that I wholly agree with, Surely the opposite of that, the position of virtue, would have been to end the killing as soon as possible. Instead, we have chosen to prolong it, arming Ukraine to the level that it now thinks it can win this conflict and, quote, retake more territory from Russia, as the security official put it. We took away any incentive for Ukraine to come to the table and negotiate. The opposite, we signaled that we were in this fight for, quote, as long as it takes, as President Biden put it, when asked whether we would be supporting Ukraine indefinitely.
3: G7 leaders this week pledged to support Ukraine, quote, for as long as it takes. And I'm wondering if you would explain what that means to the American people for as long as it takes. Does it mean indefinite support from the United States for Ukraine? Or will there come a time when you have to say to President Zelensky that the United States cannot support his country any longer? Thank you. We
4: are going to support Ukraine as long as it takes.
3: You heard the man,
1: as long as it takes. As gas prices skyrocketed by 50%, we doubled down on prolonging a conflict that kept gas prices higher by sanctioning Russia and its oil. And if you complained, you were called a Putin stooge, shown pictures of Ukrainian casualties and told to buy an electric car. Of course, I believe territorial sovereignty is important. I think Putin's invasion was a terrible mistake that cost many lives, but the conflict could have been ended just two weeks after the invasion when Putin put three conditions on the table for immediately withdrawing troops. Russia told Ukraine in the first week of March that it was ready to halt military operations quote, in a moment, if Ukraine met three conditions. It must acknowledge Crimea as Russian territory, recognize the separatist republics of Donetsk and Lugansk, and change its constitution to enshrine neutrality, meaning that it would no longer be seeking membership in NATO. It is crucial to note that these three conditions were all already de facto true at the time of Putin's invasion, meaning he was willing to end the conflict just 12 days after it began in exchange for recognition of the status quo. Lest you think that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky would never accept such conditions, that same day he told ABC's John Muir that he was open to compromise on all three. Here is that clip, which aired on March 7th.
2: Mr. President, I wanted to get your reaction to what the Kremlin announced just a short time ago. They called these conditions to end this war. They said you must change your constitution to give up your wishes uh, to join NATO, that you uh, should recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and that you recognize the independence of those two Russian separatist regions in the east. Are you willing to go along with all three of those conditions? What is your message to Vladimir Putin right now?
5: First, I'm ready for a dialogue. Uh, we are not ready for the uh, capital- uh, capitulation, because it's not me. This is about the people who um, elected me. Regarding NATO, I'm, have, I have cooled down regarding this question a long time ago, um, the, after we understood that Russia is not pr- that. NATO is not prepared to accept Ukraine. The Alliance is uh, afraid of controversial things and uh, confrontation with Russia. I never wanted to be a country which is begging something on its knees. And we are not going to, to be that country, and I don't want to be that president. When the Kremlin says these three conditions
2: to end the war, that you must give up on joining NATO, recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and recognize the independence of those two separatist regions in the east, to Vladimir Putin, who will get this message from you, you say it's a non-starter, not
5: willing to those three conditions right now?
0: I'm talking
5: about security guarantees. I think that items regarding temporary occupied territories and uh, unrecognized republics that have not been recognized by anyone but Russia, these pseudo-republics. But we can discuss and find a compromise on how these territories will live on.
1: So what happened? Zelensky was willing to compromise. Why did nobody push him to? Why did we choose instead to send $10 billion to Ukraine, prolonging the suffering there and the high gas prices here and stealing from our own citizens for a goal that is just isn't clear how it's in our national interest? I really wish I knew the answer to that. Why, as soon as we ended one forever war in Afghanistan, we had to start another one in Eastern Europe. Why Ukrainian membership in NATO is of any national interest to the US whatsoever, let alone to the tune of $10 billion. I wish someone could explain to me why the only people voting against sending billions and billions of US taxpayer dollars to fight a battle over Luhansk are MAGA folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I feel very sorry for the Ukrainian people, but I was elected to represent my district in Georgia, said Green, making a lot of sense.
3: I, I feel very sorry for the Ukrainian people, but I was elected to represent uh, my district in Georgia uh, for the United States of America. And right now our country's in crisis, our border is out of control, human trafficking, fentanyl, uh, we have inflation out of control, gas
1: prices out of control, I mean, it's, it's a baby formula, baby formula. People cannot find baby formula with such a shortage. But our Congress is gonna send $40 million to some other country if they're doing, you know what we did today? We named post offices.
3: So no, when this, when this Congress wants to care about America and our people and, and do something with our people's tax dollars for our country and do the
1: right things, then we can talk about other countries, but it's ridiculous. As for the anti-war left, they're still braying about Trump being a Putin plant. People have argued that for Zelensky to negotiate with Putin would be to reward Putin for his bad behavior. And I'm of course sympathetic to that argument from a moral point of view, but this isn't a morality play. There are civilian lives at stake. And while, let me say this again, I think Putin's invasion of Ukraine was horrifying morally and disastrous politically, thuggish and murderous behavior there seems to me little evidence that his territorial ambitions extended beyond the eastern side of Ukraine, which has at least since the Orange Revolution been part of a tug of war between Russia and the US. And the question of rewarding bad behavior is really mostly applicable if the perpetrator is likely to reoffend, something that is very unlikely given how much Putin has struggled to integrate just Crimea. Not only that, but we know that massive amounts of our military aid is not even making it to the front. CBS deleted a report on the subject in response to pressure from Ukraine. But before it did, it found that of the $10 billion in aid, just a third actually made it to the front. The rest is disappearing into the hands of oligarchs, political power players, and of course, the neo-Nazi Azov battalion, which committed mass rapes, including of a mentally disabled man and other atrocities in Donetsk in 2014. This is where your taxpayer dollars are going. Meanwhile, Europe has decided it is no longer interested in funding this conflict. Throughout July, Europe's six biggest countries offered Ukraine no new military commitments. Remember when President Trump said we were patsies for being the only ones funding NATO? Thanks to our military aid, Ukraine has been able to hit Russia in Sevastopol, Crimea, as well as deep behind the front line. An ammunition depot in the Belgorod region was set on fire on Thursday, and U.S. mobile rocket launchers hit Luhansk last week. Now both Russia and Ukraine are accusing each other of planning to attack a Russian-occupied nuclear plant, Europe's largest nuclear power station. The Russians have control of the power station, but it's being manned by Ukrainians, allowing both sides to predict false flag operations. The world is on a verge of nuclear disaster, tweeted Zelensky this weekend. How long will it take the global community to respond to Russia's irresponsible actions and nuclear blackmailing? There's some irony to Zelensky's tweet. In what universe has the global community ignored Russia's invasion? Recall as well that Zelensky's first demand during the conflict was for the U.S. to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which would have turned this from a proxy U.S.-Russia war into an actual nuclear U.S.-Russia war. Most recently, the daughter of an ultra-nationalist known as Putin's brain, Alexandra Dugin, was killed in a car bomb outside of Moscow when a car she was in exploded and burst into flames. Ukraine is denying involvement in the attack, but Russian nationalists are demanding retribution. Maria Zakharova, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman, said that if the attack was organized by Ukraine, it would amount to state terrorism. The escalation will no doubt come with more requests for military assistance. Once our elected officials will no doubt be eagerly to, eager to heed, unlike the Europeans who seem to have tired of the situation or at least decided that Putin is not enough of a threat to them to continue funding Ukraine's resistance to him. One can admire Zelensky for doing everything, saying anything and posing with anyone to help his country, while also pointing out that in acquiescing to his demands, our leaders are doing the exact opposite, selling us out for a country whose interests are just not aligned with our own. If Putin wins in Ukraine, he emboldens autocrats all over the world. If Ukrainians defeat Putin, they will embolden Democrats all over the world. The stakes of this war are global, tweeted Obama's ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul who in now-deleted tweets also suggested that Putin was actually worse than Hitler because Hitler didn't kill German-speaking people, apparently, 165,000 German Jews murdered by the Nazis would beg to differ. But McFaul has it backwards. What makes Zelensky's leadership impressive is his willingness to demand that Western leaders put aside their own interests for the interests of his people, and what makes our leaders cowards is their unwillingness to do the same for their citizens, which would mean saying no to Zelensky the thing that would actually embolden democrats all over the world would be for them to act democratically and find out what their citizens want their taxpayer dollars to be spent on and this just isn't it.
0: Mm.
1: Robbie, where are you on on aid to Ukraine?
0: No, I'm with you. Look, th- this war is only going to end if there is a negotiation between Zelensky and Putin, probably involving some loss of territory, territory that frankly was not controlled by Ukraine in the first place, to Russia. That's it. This whole, we'll give them, we'll, we're with them, whatever it takes, we'll give them whatever they need, is an attitude that will have this war go on forever with people dying, with domestically our economy be, being harmed, clearly there's no appetite among the American people to keep doing this, which is why this is so frustrating to make it about democracy. Democracy, by the way, which Zelensky is, is not governing in the strict um, uh, principles that one needs to adhere to, to be, you know, in, in, in a, as a Western kind of liberal government um, by, by centralizing the media, by banning opposition figures in his own party. You know, it, it confuses the stakes of what we're even fighting for, and uh, which is something that is, is nothing new to our wars, where you know, where in the Middle East when we're arming, you know, one revolutionary group against another, all with terrible records on terror and all those sorts of things, and then and then we don't have any control once we give the weapons, once we give the aid. Does it always stay in the possession of the people we've armed? No. How many times do weapons have to end up? Or do the stakes then change? And now we're, no, you know, our old friends are no longer our friends, and they have our weapons, or the weapons end up with someone else. So it's uh, it's it's a situation we've been down through so many times. Look, if we could have, if we could have stopped Putin from invading the country, if we could have quickly knocked Russia out of the war, that would have been one thing. Clearly, we can't. We just can't. And it's frustrating because, like you said, right, we we don't want Putin to have done this. It's his fault, I place all blame on him. But uh, we have to be realistic about the limits of U.S. power, and we're not gonna start World War III over this. And in that case, gotta negotiate. So I I really appreciate you um, talking through our audience about what's going on.
1: Thank you, Robbie, and I'm excited to hear what's on your radar next. I'm very excited to hear
0: what's on your radar. Monkeypox. There have now been more than 14,000 cases of it in the United States since this pandemic began a few months ago. That's an alarming statistic because while the disease isn't particularly fatal, in fact, there have been zero deaths reported in the U.S. from it so far, it is really, really painful and it can leave scars from the rashes and the lesions that appear on the skin when you get it. Now, we already have a vaccine that works for monkeypox, but the American public health bureaucracy is already behind the curve when it comes to administering this vaccine. Indeed, the FDA and the CDC already repeating many of their early COVID mistakes. And they're not alone because the mainstream media is also repeating so many of the things it got wrong about COVID. Most notably, many of the media are trying to scare parents into thinking that their kids are in danger of catching monkeypox as they return to school this fall. In fact, a recent stunningly bad article in The New York Times suggested that parents who are worried about monkeypox should just go ahead and stick with all the COVID mitigation strategies, washing down everything, social distancing, and of course, masks, 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 and more masks. The Times article was titled How to Protect Against Monkeypox as School Starts, and it does acknowledge that monkeypox is not spread anywhere nearly as easily as COVID, and that so far children are not at any statistical risk of catching it. So maybe we could have stopped there. But then the Times reporter had this to say. Parents who are concerned about the virus may also be relieved to know that many pandemic precautions and behaviors can be repurposed to protect children against monkeypox, wearing masks in crowded indoor areas, avoiding sharing personal use items, increasing the frequency of hand washing and isolating at home when you're sick. This advice isn't coming in a vacuum, of course. It's coming in a time when most school districts across the country are bringing kids back without a masking requirement. That's not true everywhere, of course. Schools in the District of Columbia, some of them are keeping masks in place. But a lot of other districts have begrudgingly acknowledged that even the CDC no longer recommends this in many cases. Powerful teachers' unions, however, would prefer to keep kids in masks, or better yet, have school remote, or maybe just canceled entirely. But right now, they've mostly lost that battle but enter monkeypox. We all know exactly what the media is doing. It's scaring people in service of pushing masks and other annoying public health measures because Team Blue wants people scared, wants them locked down, wants them isolated, wants to push these measures they've been pushing for three years. They're not stopping now, just look at these headlines. So here's one from Newsweek actually, more monkeypox cases found in kids as school looms. Salon said, as students return to school, fears of monkeypox transmission linger. A local news site said, experts concerned about monkeypox as kids head back to school. And then my favorite from Curbed, I've been bitten, I've been scratched by kids. That's quotes from teachers on the lack of monkeypox guidelines. Since they've been bitten and scratched in the past, obviously going to get monkeypox. Fear sells. It's the media's golden goose. They love to terrify readers but don't listen to them. That's because everything we know about monkeypox transmission so far tells us there's little reason to be worried about going back to school. Telling kids to wear masks to avoid monkeypox is insultingly stupid advice. So far, Overwhelmingly, monkeypox is spread by men who have sex with other men, often in settings where they have multiple or anonymous sexual partners. Monkeypox is not only a sexually transmitted disease, but so far sexual transmission among a certain subset of the population is responsible for something like 98% of all cases. So yes, it's possible to contract monkeypox via non-sexual contact. Several minors, including one just over the weekend in New York State, have done just that. They got the disease. We don't know exactly how, but non-sexual contact is certainly a likelier mode of spread in those cases. But still, we are talking about just a handful of cases among the 14,000. There's no reason to think monkeypox is easily transmitted via non-sexual means. It's theoretically possible, yes, but it's certainly not so likely that we need to routinely mask up out of some overabundance of caution in schools. What we need to do is make these vaccines and therapeutics readily available for the at-risk population, men who have sex with men. Monkeypox, unlike COVID, does not spread very easily. So if we vaccinate a substantial proportion of the at-risk population, we will actually benefit from a herd immunity effect where these spillover cases that are already very rare of non-sexually transmitted monkeypox infections, those are going to become even more frequent, even more infrequent. It would be crazy, truly crazy, to do anything different in schools this fall because of monkeypox only a media that is desperate to scare people would at this point even suggest that masking kids to stop monkeypox is something schools should be worried about or focused on and i'm surprised at all the headlines i found from uh, people in the media, I guess i shouldn't be pr- be surprised because you know kind of freaking out about very trivial dangers and it's not it's not a trivial danger again if you fall into that very specific category men who have uh, sex with men often in public settings uh, they should get absolutely vaccinated but Kid, the general population, there will be a case here or there, but there's no reason to think there are going to be, like, large outbreaks because of that. It's, it's transmitted most easily through sexual contact, maybe occasionally non-sexual contact, but it's just, it's, we're not, there's no reason to be like, yeah, maybe the kids should just wear masks when they go back to schools just in case. But I'm, I'm hearing that already, and you know you're going to hear more of it as, uh, as the school year really gets underway.
1: So I'm gonna ask you the question I ask you almost every week when you cover this stuff so well, which is why? Why are they doing this? Why
0: are they, why? Right, That's that's a great question. It's a hard question to answer. I'm convinced that the powers behind Team Blue, media, teachers, unions, the relevant voices for this conversation, specifically on schools, They uh, are just totally set on being good. Follow the science, people. It's like a tribal identifier. If you were to give any ground on masking and social distancing, etc., it's like you're you're like all of a sudden you're a pro-Trump person or something. Like that is how tied up in their identity. Following these public health guidelines are you know following the science, obeying the science. Uh, even though that's not what the science says anymore. It's not what the CDC guidelines say. And when you you make your whole personality, your whole social identity about being part of a tribe where we distinguish ourselves or we identify ourselves by those who are most willing to undergo public health uh, disease mitigation efforts that are, that are over the top and annoying to many people, then you're going to continue to do it. Um, and, and you're going to feel, I guess, maybe more... Like, you have to do it even more now that nobody else is doing it because you're a true believer. You're still part of the team, part of the effort. That's the the best I can do to kind of explain it. I think a lot of – I think the teachers' union specifically really bought into the idea that, uh, you know, teachers are in in danger from their kids, um, treating kids. Some kids like their disease vectors. Obviously, many teachers don't feel that way at all, but the ones who kind of have power in this organization, they would have, Randy Weingarten would have kept schools closed. She'd still keep them closed if they were up to her. She said, basically, until there was COVID zero, which is never going to happen. So that was their level of, you know, willing to go to that extreme uh, among the leadership. And, and so then, of course, you're and if you're willing to do that, of course, you're going to say, yeah, put on masks for monkeypox. Why not?
1: It's so crazy because it used to be like a joke that when you wanted to attack your political opponents, you would say you know, what about the children, right? Do you hate children? Right. But here it seems like again and again, the left's position is to sacrifice the children on the altar of their hatred of Trump, right? Their woke ideology, their embarrassment about, for example, where crime is happening and who its victims are, right? And who the perpetrators are or where monkeypox is happening, right? Like there's this weird thing where um, they, if they feel that the truth is embarrassing somehow to their agenda, the first, let's just make sure that the children pay the price, right? It's like this weird flex, and I just Mm -hmm. don't understand how... You know, that went from being a joke about a political attack to they're really willing to sacrifice children over and over and over again. It's not nothing to keep kids home from school. It's not nothing to ask children to wear masks. It's not nothing to ask disabled children to wear masks. Like, you know, you would think that in a society that prides itself on its compassion, disabled children would have the number one position of like who we have to be taking care of and protecting and making sure that they're not being harmed. And yet they're the sacrificial lamb on all of these like really terrible, um agendas
0: well, and some people will just refuse to concede that there are downsides from following these measures you know there there were school district officials in uh, i think in California maybe in New York who said during remote learning well, they're spending more time with their families. You know, there's family knowledge too, so that's important. So, you know, what's even the problem with just keeping kids at home for a year? Uh, with masks, there are you know uh, uh, so-called experts who will say, "Oh, yeah, no, it's not. It's not harmful. They they like wearing them. They you want to wear them. It, it makes shy kids feel better, or something like that." W- what about learning to read? What about you know? <laughs> under all of us, instinctively pull down our mask when we can't when we were wearing them and you couldn't understand another person. So if we do that, I imagine some of them have trouble, you know, understanding perhaps what their teachers are saying. So it's just uh, it, it, the refusal to concede that it, it, is, it was a lot to ask. Uh, especially for kids who are not who didn't have a lot to fear from covid and just like covid right now have virtually nothing statistically nothing to fear from monkeypox nor does really anyone else outside of of uh, of the category we discussed a category for which there are vaccines and and it seems like it's absolutely a a good idea to to take them and that will have you know socially beneficial um, effects. We, we can get this pandemic under control, but um, you know you don't. We <laughs> don't need to worry about the back-to-school effort being hamstrung by monkeypox. But you know some some crazy mutation for this virus. It could. I guess the situation theoretically could be diff- different in the future. We know what the situation is right now. Let's not panic, please. Amen. Mm. All right. More rising when we return. Just last week, Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which friends of the show and associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, wrote about recently, specifically honing in on the $80 billion in funding for the IRS and how fact-checking organizations have been going to bat for Biden. Liz Wolf is here with us to discuss further. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. You know, we've talked about these new IRS agents, this army of tax enforcers that will be joining the program with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And the media seems really invested in the idea that there's nothing to worry about here. You know, they're just going to be uh, answering phone calls, providing better customer service, that sort of thing, when I think the text of the bill specifically calls for them to be in tax enforcement. So it's like, uh, it, it's like who are we supposed to trust here?
3: Yeah, there's something really disturbing that's been happening where, for whatever reason, uh, the fact-checking organizations that we've in the past relied upon have been more interested in fact checking the claims of kind of crazy cuckoo out there conservatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who yes, admittedly is spreading misinformation about what exactly this additional funding will do. But they're more interested in fact checking Marjorie Taylor Greene's assertions about this legislation than all the different things that Biden administration is saying, which are not necessarily true. So at least when I think of fact-checking organizations, I think it's really important to hold those who are actually in power accountable. And that's really something where they're asleep at the wheel. So uh, our recent colleague, Matt Welch, has covered this quite wonderfully. But if you actually go through and look at the Congressional Research Service report as to the breakdown of this additional $80 billion in funding, about $5 billion are going to be devoted toward modernizing the IRS's system, so updating their tech, about $3 billion is going toward taxpayer-related services, and then something like $45 billion of the total $80 billion in funding is going toward additional enforcement, and they're very vague on what that looks like. So forgive people for thinking that that $45 billion toward additional enforcement is actually going to possibly hiring more armed IRS agents.
1: Well, you know, I, I always with trepidation take on the two blonde libertarians when you guys are in <laughs> such agreement about things. But um, all right, here are some quotes I pulled from the uh the fact checks. And again, you know, I, I t- far be it from me to defend the sort of fact checking <laughs> cottage industry, which I totally agree with you. So often goes after just you know nonsense instead of actually holding power to account. But here are some quotes I pulled that are things I'm glad to know. All right, so for example, many of the new employees would replace. 50,000 IRS agents who are expected to leave or retire in the coming years, which means that there would only be 37,000 potential new ones. Um, Also in the past, the IRS has had as many as 116,000 positions. Only special agents who investigate criminal violations of the tax code would be authorized to carry firearms. And then this I think is quite important. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that she directed any additional resources, including any new personnel or auditors that are hired, to not to use the any any of the new resources um to increase the share of small businesses or households below the level of four hundred thousand dollars as a threshold for for new audits and we know for a fact that uh, the irs audits poor families at five times the rate as everybody else we know that eighty percent of audits are to people who make under 75 a hundred thousand dollars a year so um, I, i'm very glad to know all of this so i on the one hand yes when you see you know in matts piece just the army of fact checks defending the Biden administration you know you your heart sort of sinks and it's like, oh, the status of jur- journalism today is so terrible. They see themselves as, you know, the mouthpieces of, of the administration. But on the other hand, I do think this is all really important information. Um, and, you know, h- how else do we address, you know, the inequity of who the IRS goes after than increasing
3: resources? Yeah, I think I think you bring up a few really interesting points. One thing that I am sort of suspicious of, and I think we'll see how this plays out, but you're totally factually correct, is the IRS's claim that basically two thirds of the agency will be retiring over the next five years. I think you had cited the number of something to the tune of 50,000 out of a total uh, you know, IRS staff uh, agency of, of about 80,000. So we're talking like two thirds of the agency that they claim will be retiring very soon. That's an astonishing rate of turnover. And so I'm very curious about whether those numbers are real. They don't seem super, not not ones that, you know, you're operating off of the right numbers. That's the information that the agency has given us, Bhatia. But I'm a little bit curious because that would be pretty unprecedented for an agency to see that a staggering a rate of turnover. I mean, perhaps they're just so incompetent and miserable to work for that tons of people <laughs> want to get out, in which case, you know, whatever, uh, go... Pursue a better job, uh, perhaps become a fact checker. We need some actually decent <laughs> ones of those. Um, but so that's something that I'm sort of curious about. And then I, I think you're you're very fair to be fixating on the component, which is that you know many people have assured us that the the actual criminal enforcement division of the IRS, which is something of you know 2,000 people who actually carry weapons. You know, we've seen job postings that have gone viral and been circulating, and those have gotten very disproportionate airtime. And I think conservatives, it's a trope to say conservatives seize on or conservatives pounce. But to some degree, that is what we have seen, conservatives (laughs) pouncing on that type of thing uh, and distorting it and extrapolating it and acting as if it is representative of all of the hiring the IRS will do. I've said on this program a few times, uh, and I will continue saying it uh, as long as I need to. if if we can actually make the IRS more competent and better at responding to taxpayers' concerns, the people that they're supposed to be serving, I'm all in favor of that. We need a lot more transparency, we need a lot more efficiency, and there's something really disturbing about when you overpay the IRS, because we bear the burden of calculating how much we owe them, we're essentially providing them with an interest-free loan, which especially in times of significant inflation, you know, I had a situation where I overpaid the IRS and it took me six months before I actually received my refund. Okay, well that's that money being uh, put to a use that's not really serving me. And that's a huge injustice that I think we ought to care about. So if the IRS is going to devote funds to be fixing situations like those, which have you know been rampant uh, after basically a decade of all kinds of different budget cuts, I'm all in favor of that. I'm just very skeptical as to whether or not that's actually going to happen.
0: Hmm. Well Reuters fact-checked that video you're talking about Liz. They claim that only a small fraction of agents are armed. Here's some of the video in question. Um, what is this? we the IRS. Renner, you're under them arrest. Them. You're going to jail buddy. Most people don't even know that the IRS has criminal investigators who use their accounting skills and their authority as a special IRS agent to help solve tax crimes. We are the only agency that can uh, work investigations regarding tax evasion and other tax-related offenses The Adrian project has been helping advertise the IRS special agents CI's roles for the past 15 years by visiting different schools around the nation. It was You can actually see on that recruiting video the seminar was held just a few months ago on March 31st 2022 so look i think it's interesting how fact checkers have taken on this very interesting role in our in our discourse in the kind of modern trump or post trump era where like they're clearly not adding any commentary or any information for the most part or at least if we're talking about facebook's independent independent fact checkers the pointer institute politifact those kinds of people it's just the same kind of commentary you find elsewhere in the media. So it is strange that it has this, but it gets this extra, like, like, uh, like. Uh, stamp of approval or credibility, I guess, because they use the words fact-checking. But it's just the same kind of political commentary that you find anywhere else. You know, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. It's disproportionately likely to try to be interested in things, like you said, Liz, the crazy right-wing people are saying, and then just accepts wholesale whatever, you know, the, the Government agencies, which are viewed as non-ideological, but of course have their own ideologies and their own interest in power, their own bureaucratic self-defense, they just accept whatever they say without uh, without criticism. So, how do we how do we kind of get there? how did How did fact-checking arrive at that level of unearned respect?
3: Well, I think to some degree, there are really excellent fact checkers out there. One person I always turn to is Glenn, Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post. There are some, you know, there's a long tradition of really good ombudsmen who are basically internal within newsrooms who are ensuring that ethical standards are adhered to. And I think that's, it's long been this very hallowed tradition. And I think for good reason, these are really, really important roles. But then I think we saw an interesting shift where we saw, you know, organizations like Poynter and Reuters and, and, PolitiFact and all these different things be really focused not just on this internal check on journalistic ethics, but this externally facing uh, role where they're basically trying to take the general public through the process of, you know, how do we evaluate which facts are true and what, what's political spin and what's not. And I think for a long time, this functioned relatively well. But I do think what, what started, uh, what has roots in this like interest in transparency has really become something that's not transparent at all, and this is like a something that I keep being really fixated on, perhaps to an unhealthy degree. But like when we see the Twitter fact checks, because now social media sites are doing these uh, and putting uh, affixing little warning labels onto different tweets that people are posting, we don't know who these Twitter fact checkers are, who are writing these things. So I'm expected to take this company's word for it, but I'm not really sure. Like, you know, for all we know, it could be a 22-year-old UC Berkeley grad who's, you know, completely underpaid, sitting in some dark room somewhere who knows jack shit. Like, I don't know. <laughs> They're not providing us any information about who these people are. And so if, if we're focusing on transparency, and if all of this was done initially in the interest of transparency, which is a very noble thing, we've really dropped the ball on that. And I think that's true for sometimes for PolitiFact, that's true for some of these bigger fact checking mm. organizations, not just the, the Twitter fact checking panels or the Facebook mm-hmm. teams that are doing this. So I think in general, knowing the actual people who are doing this, understanding who is on these teams that are making these editorial decisions, especially at these social media platforms uh, to decide what gets trending and, and what ultimately becomes receives a fact check. I think that would be a really positive step in the right direction. And nobody really loses out as a result of that. Mm. I think both left and right are, their sense of trust is bolstered the more they know who's working on these things. Mm. So, as, in my view, this is just a very small thing that these social media companies could do to increase transparency. And I think, you know, we would all be well served by this. But for whatever reason, they're more interested in playing this very partisan game than actually truing back to their mission.
0: And Liz Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. The Young Turks Anna Kasparian took heat online after posting a video of a man assaulting a woman, saying, quote, This is a man who was arrested 41 times after this incident. He was released and went on to send a subway worker to the hospital with a broken collarbone. But according to this crime reporter, that man committing assault breaking bones is the real victim. Here's the video. It's pretty graphic. <laughs> And so then Anna Kasparian was getting a lot of criticism online from the left on Twitter, other places, uh, for you know calling her kind of like a right-wing person for daring to be concerned on behalf of that the person who got who got sucker punched and you know anyone else experiencing violence on the streets, uh, which I think is. Pretty ridiculous is indi- indicative of some um, messed up priorities here. Um, look, uh, you know, we can have a reasonable debate over what are the right political um, policy strategies for reducing violence on the streets, reducing homelessness, reducing drug addiction. But um, I, I don't, what is wrong about being outraged that that is something a random New Yorker has to experience? That, that it's, it, obviously, that's, that's, Horrible. That's wrong. That's horrifying, and uh, I am I am just as sickened about it as Anna Kasparian is. But I, I, I I'm not a, I'm not a progressive in in good standing with progressives. So I guess it, I guess I'm not betraying any team to say it, it, it sickens me. But I, I guess uh, for Anna's. For progressive people, it's different. But you probably, uh, you know, Bacha as someone who has been on, uh, I, I know you're a very independent thinker, but you've been associated <laughs> with those circles and, and that ideology, and, and you've been very, very critical of it. And I know you're um, concerned about rising crime. Um, so you've probably gotten a lot of the, the kinds of criticism Anna Kasperian's getting now.
1: The thing is she was getting it from both sides you know mm-hmm. the progressives who you know prioritize criminals and mentally ill homeless people and drug addicts over their victims but she was also getting it from the right who were saying well you're a progressive your website is full of articles talking about defunding the police and police accountability and this is where this leads and I, I so identify with where she's Coming from as somebody who myself went through that journey of first pushing for things like bail reform and then realizing the costs of them and that maybe these you know there were a lot of mistakes made due to some you know I didn't have that much power but you know things I advocated for that I now see as very dangerous and bad Um, and I have Mm -hmm. to say like one of my one of things I hate most about online discourse is when people. Um, come for someone for finally arriving at the right conclusion. Like you don't have to criticize someone for taking the time to go through, you know, to honestly reassess their position. You should be cheering that on. And um, I, I totally agree with you. Seeing progressives get upset at someone for standing up for... Can you imagine a more vulnerable person than the woman who got punched in that video? An elderly Asian woman, like how do we as a society mm-hmm. not say like we must protect people like that we must respect people like that you know to to arrive at that stage in life to get punched by somebody who's been arrested 41 times and then have the people who see themselves as the compassionate people side with the person who didn't punch you. I mean, it's just, it's so disgusting. And it's, I think it's what, you know, just to bring it back to politics, this is why people like Ron DeSantis are getting so much traction on both sides of the political aisle because there is a sickness in the progressive movement. It's compassion, it curdles into cruelty because there are no limits on it and they have this woke way of defining who deserves compassion and who doesn't and it always excludes people who you would think actually deserve compassion children the elderly minorities living in in, in poor neighborhoods where is the compassion for these people you won't find it on the left anymore
0: hmm. and i would agree that um you know, someone who's been, who's been arrested, obviously you're guilty, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, the, the policy, it's a policy in New York. I mean, Rikers is full of people awaiting trial, you know, who are locked up for long, long periods of time who have not been found guilty. And, and they're there for, for forever it's under horrible conditions. So I get it. I think that should be reformed. I don't support that. In this case, this is someone who has been arrested many, 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 many times. So, in this case, it should be more evident, I think, that keeping this person behind bars until a trial or until whatever the legal action being taken is, you know, makes sense in this case, where maybe it it doesn't make sense, and I I would think it would be unjust if, you know, someone's arrested for the first time uh, and it has to wait forever behind bars. No, but in this case, you know, that burden shifts a little bit. And look, I take the point that maybe you know, mental health resources or you know, getting, get help, helping this person with drug addiction, um, uh, you know, keeping them in a mental health facility rather than the prison, all of those things would be better. Sure, fine. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what strategies are being employed to make that the default. But that doesn't change the fact that this person is on camera punching someone, totally unprovoked, a random person on the street. And at that point, you can't just handle this. As a, it's, then it's not just a mental health problem, it's a violent—he he clearly committed a violent act. And we, the, if, if you think the government has any legitimacy or any purpose, its main purpose is to protect people from violence, from random violence, uh, from other people initiating violence against them. So, they have to—we to do. We don't have society at all if that problem is not being, is not being handled. And that's what, I, that's what I don't understand. And you know, if it takes, and then I think you run into all sorts of problems. You know, I've looked at this a little bit. Well, what does it take to actually get men, mentally ill, drug-addicted homeless people? How do we get them off the streets into proper environments? Because I think, of course, we all want that. But then you find out it's very difficult to keep those people in Even if you give them homes, it's difficult to keep them there because a lot of them uh, want to use drugs on the street, and/or and, are psychotic and need to take need to follow a very regimented schedule of taking antipsychotic medication. And because of the laws in this country, it's very difficult to force people who are unwilling to take antipsychotic medication. Maybe that needs to change. Um, th- there's an area where my libertarianism, um, you know, my instinctive well, no, you can't force medicine on people if they don't want it, or you shouldn't, has run up against a Well, this is a significant, uh, significant. Problem, and you know maybe uh, and I've had to change a little bit of how I think about that. But it's it's clearly a hard problem to solve. But just pretending it's not a problem at all doesn't that absolutely doesn't solve it, or that we can, we should just do nothing about it because the other thing is too hard.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, we all remember Kalief Broder, God rest his soul, who spent three years in Rikers awaiting trial for a crime he did not commit, got out and committed suicide because of how horrific the experience mm-hmm. was. Um, you know, we all remember examples like that. And of course, people like that, you know, speedy trial is one of the, you know, bedrocks of our constitution and it's until proven guilty, et cetera. But you know, th- that's not this, this situation. You have violent criminals Who are preying on the vulnerable over and over and over. And the same crowd that cheered on vaccine mandates, right? They've cheered Uh on forcing people to take a vaccine that does not do what they said it was going to do, right? Those same people think that, you know, total bodily autonomy to the mentally ill who are a danger to society and a danger to the most vulnerable. You know, these people are preying on children, the elderly, anybody they can who they think can't can't defend themselves. And so I I, I just think it is so horrific. And, you know, kudos to Anna Kasparian for standing up to her side and Mm -hmm. standing up for that woman and saying the truth.
0: Yeah. A danger to uh, to other people, a danger to, you know, random citizens on the street and a danger to themselves. It doesn't feel sure. humanitarian, you know, to just let these people um, go through this experience and, and, and not do more. Um, you know, whether that's uh, a better a more a more sane criminal justice response, a mental health response, whatever it is, we have to do it because it's just becoming, and, and, it, and I, think it, I think it is really cruel to, you know, dunk on people like Anna expressing outrage that this is allowed to take place. It's just, it makes no sense to me that your sympathies are just automatically the other way, as, uh, as some progressives, some liberals were, you know, watching this uh, happen on social media. All right, we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Polio tormented America and Europe until the 1960s, paralyzing more than 15,000 people a year in America and 8,000 in Britain. That was mostly children, according to The Economist.
1: The invention of a vaccine set the world on a path to eradicate the polio virus, but in June, a 20-year-old man was paralyzed by polio in New York, and in recent months, the virus has turned up in wastewater samples in London and New York. The type of polio virus detected in London and New York is a vaccine-derived strain, a rare mutation originating from the oral polio vaccine, according to The Economist.
0: Dr. Pyle Patel, an infectious diseases physician and assistant professor at the University of Michigan Medical School, joins us now to weigh in on the virus's return. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Yeah, definitely. Glad to be here.
0: So what, tell us what is meant by vaccine-derived strain. What does that mean?
6: Yeah, you know, this whole issue can be really complicated. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to break it down as simply as possible. But, um, you know, when, you know, in the 50s and when polio was kind of running wild in the United States and throughout the world, we didn't have vaccine. And so that's why so many people unfortunately got ill, had things like paralysis. And really around the same time, two vaccines came out. One is the one that we use here in the United States, and that's an inactivated vaccine. So it's, it's not a live virus. That's what all of us got vaccinated with as kids. Um, it, there's also a second vaccine that came out that's actually a little bit easier to give because you don't have to refrigerate it as long. It's, um, you can just give it to kids in their mouth. That's what's used throughout the world that is a live virus vaccine. What that means is it works really well, but it can have some side effects. And so what seems to have happened in New York is actually that someone who got vaccinated outside of the U.S. Mm. probably came here and was shedding that live virus. And that person who unfortunately did get infected was unvaccinated. So at the end of the day, the people who are still at risk for any kind of polio are folks who are unvaccinated. So complex issue. But at the end of the day, the sentence that I would say is you're really only at risk if you're unvaccinated.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for that breakdown. That was so clear and so helpful. Um, You know, we are at a time when vaccines are very much in the news. Uh, We do know that we have a lot of neighbors and fellow Americans who are vaccine hesitant when it comes to coronavirus, that they were not convinced that this was the best way to protect themselves. I wonder, Dr. Patel, what would you say to people who are looking at this? You looking at a vaccine that ended up actually giving people or creating a situation in which people were vulnerable and exposed and even got the very thing it was promising to inoculate them from? How do, how would you address somebody who said, "Okay, well, I'm going to take that as, you know, further information when making, you know, decisions about, for example, the COVID uh, vaccine?"
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that polio is actually a, a great story in showing how well vaccines have worked. If we think about our grandparents and, you know, what was happening at that time when they were young, you know, it was really scary to go out and go to the library, go to the store. You had no way to protect yourself from getting this virus or your kids from getting this virus and you never knew what could happen. We saw even one of our own U.S. presidents unfortunately get paralyzed from polio. And so you've really seen over the last 50 years very, very few to zero cases of polio in the United States because we have vaccinated all of these generations of children. And we have not seen any cases of polio due to the vaccine. It's a great story. Mm. And so unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that folks who have remained unvaccinated, that vaccine hesitancy that has unfortunately hit some communities harder than others, leaves those children and young adults at risk for polio when there really shouldn't have been a need for polio to come back to the United States.
0: Well because the polio vaccine, you know, works differently right than the COVID vaccine which was, you know, we were told or we, some people had promised initially that well, if you get vaccinated from covid uh, with the vaccine it seems like you're not going to get covid. Well, okay, there's going to be rare breakthrough infections. Now we all know, you know so, so many people have gotten it after having gotten vaccinated that the vaccine while offering protection against robust um, illness and you know, being helpful to people who are at heightened risk and all that—that's uh, good. But the vaccine is not preventing cases um, itself, and that has, I think, um, helped to increase maybe the hesitancy, hesitancy about vaccines in general because that you know talking point about the vaccine ended up, about the COVID vaccine ended up not being the case. So is it important to then, you know, distinguish the COVID vaccine from a vaccine like the polio vaccine, which does in fact stop you from getting polio, not just improve your outcomes with polio, but actually stop you from getting it, unlike the COVID vaccine?
6: Yeah, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I think there, all, all of these, uh, unfortunately, every infectious disease is, is very different. Um, and again, I think that the the polio vaccine and, and the stories really, you know, that, that we've probably heard or read about from people that we know in our own family that were affected. I think that there really was at, between the 50s and the 80s in the United States, a sense of really trying to protect children from having to suffer from this horrible disease. And that really led to, you know, a lot of people getting vaccinated against polio. It was really a different time, a different kind of sense of thinking about vaccines. Even before COVID and before this last pandemic, unfortunately, vaccine hesitancy has been something that we've been dealing with in the US and internationally. I think it's a really complex issue, Um, but you do see some of the same factors come through that have been leading to, unfortunately, parents making these decisions for their children that leave them at risk, not just for polio, COVID, all sorts of other infectious diseases, including measles. So I think really, if you wanna learn about vaccines and how they work and how they've really worked, polio is a great example.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder if you, from your experience, um, have a sense of, you know, what works in terms of convincing people, for example, a parent, let's say, who doesn't want their child to get, you know, the measles vaccine, what, what works in terms of convincing them? We know that, you know, just giving them more information often doesn't. Do you have a sense of what does work?
6: Yeah, you know, it's a really, it's a really tough issue. And I think that there have been a lot of people looking into this more recently and I I do believe that there's a lot of groups um, kind of looking at this from a number of different lenses because I think in different communities um, the decision making can be really different as to why um, people make this decision. I think Um, That's something that public health leaders are are continuing to invest Mm. in. One of the things that I think can really help is hearing from a trusted community member. Um, So often investing in educating leaders within a community and then having them bring that conversation down to community members can be a really kind of effective way.
0: What, is there a risk of, uh, are, you know, are we really just talking about, you know, one polio, or a, a few polio cases here and there, or is there? Is there some risk if it's showing up in the wastewater of that there's going to be an outbreak among, I guess, among the people who are not vaccinated for it?
6: Yeah, you know, the way that I would think about this, I mean, I think it's not, you know, not news that anyone wanted to hear. Um, One thing that I've definitely gotten questions about from people is, you know, am I protected? How do I know? So one thing I would say is if you are um, someone who was born in the United States, you have your immunization records or you have, you know, a trusty parent that can help. That's the first thing to do is make sure that you are vaccinated. You had all of those vaccines when you were younger. Um, and, you know, if, if you are someone who during the pandemic you may have had trouble getting your child to get all of their vaccines on time, um, that, you know, there was a lot of holdup in getting to regular routine appointments because of all of the things that we were dealing with in the healthcare system because of the pandemic. Now is the time, really, to get all of those vaccines up to date. Mm-hmm. So, that, those are the first pieces of advice that I would I would have but I would say at the end of the day if you are vaccinated that you know you really you really are going to be protected but it is those folks out there that are unvaccinated there that, that are at risk the fact that we did end up seeing someone who suffered paralysis from this probably does mean that there were more cases that really didn't get identified because those people probably ended up being okay.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this.
1: Some new polling from NBC News shows nearly 75% of the country feels that we are headed in the wrong direction under President Biden, while just 21% feel that the nation is headed in the right direction. Meanwhile, 55% of those surveyed disapprove of Biden's job in office, while 42% approve. The poll also found that 58 percent of Americans feel worried that America's best years may already be behind us. Yikes.
0: Now, when it comes to Biden's handling of the economy, 56 percent of respondents disapprove of that very issue, according to the poll. 68 percent say the country is already in a recession, no matter what they're being told by the expert class. Now, host of Straight Shot, No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figueroa is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Teslin. Thank you. Always glad to
7: be here.
0: Glad to have you with us. So more bad, more bad polling news. It's just endless for the Biden administration. You know, what could they do to right the ship at this point?
7: I guess what difference would it make because they haven't been listening. Uh, the polls have consistently said over and over and over. Uh, that people are not happy with the direction that this country is going in. But I want to remind folks, uh, Joe Biden never ran on policy. Do you anybody raise your hand if you remember him, him actually running on policy? He's always ran on healing America. If we really want to be honest about the fact of the matter, his one job and one job only, at least in his mind, was being a replacement for Trump. So uh, folks weren't that excited about Joe Biden. Uh, even folks who uh, voted for him, uh, those who were actually realistic and living in the real world, uh, they never really expected much out of this president. Remember, he did have to run three times in order to win and in order to, for him to win, they had to do quite a bit of finagling uh, to get folks to get behind Joe Biden. So Trump was the reason why Joe Biden is in office. Uh, people weren't happy with him then. They're not happy with him now. And so what I would say, is if they want right to write sh- the ship of uh, the Democrat Party, uh, they need to start getting a better bench and talk about what they're going to do in 2024. And, and Joe Biden just needs to be honest about it and say, I'm not running again. I was there as a place filler. Uh, and let's move forward and see you know, who would be the next uh, person on the bench that could probably take the country in the direction. Hmm. That the polls are begging them to do.
0: Hmm. But isn't that person Kamala Harris? I mean, how could it be anyone else? There's no universe, I think, where she steps, despite the fact that she's not not any more popular than Joe Biden. In fact, she's less popular. There's no way she steps aside for someone else, having been elevated to the vice presidency, having been prepared as Biden's successor. That's what I think. You know, kind of cast some, throw some cold water on the idea that Biden's going to step aside at all because if he steps aside he's just step aside stepping aside for harris and what is does that what does that help the democrats at all
7: well, I don't recall anybody saying that just because she's a vice president, that's automatically stepping aside for Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden was uh, Barack Obama's president, and Joe uh, Barack Obama didn't step aside, you know, for Joe Biden. So I don't look at the vice president as the next person up. You know, it shouldn't be a job, if you will, where you promote from one position to the other. She would have to run just like anybody else would have to run, and you better believe he will be primary in 2024 if he decides to run again. And I just don't think that he will. Uh, I, and it has nothing to do with his age it just has to simply do with this is something he's always wanted to do he's always wanted to be president of the united states he came in at the right time when folks were frustrated enough uh with president trump and so he took that opportunity he barely got it i know he won by a tremendous amount of votes but when i say barely got it i'm talking about got the democrat nomination uh, period. Uh, South Carolina, jo- uh, Jim Clyburn made that possible. So it's really going to be uh, up to who they want to have in leadership. And that does not automatically uh, go to Vice President Harris. And she knows that. Uh, anybody knows that you still have to run again and you could possibly lose, just like Joe Biden did uh, when he ran two times previously. You, Teslin, you
1: have your finger on the pulse. now really speak eloquently to, to the you know, millions and millions of Americans who feel disgusted with both parties, who feel unrepresented by the political system writ large. I mean, what, what could the Democrats do, or the Republicans, you know, in 2022 and 2024, what kind of a platform do you think would renew the trust um, of Americans like you who feel really alienated from both parties? Yeah,
7: you know, platform of stars would not lie. A platform that starts with not volunteering lies that nobody asked you to do that's been my frustration with joe biden but joe biden has had a record that i've never been satisfied with starting with the 94 crime bill so i was never confused on the type of president that he would be but when you talk about the platform as a whole Uh, Again, they have a lot of work to do and it starts with delivering and having this elitist attitude of, oh, you know, people are going to talk and the polls are what they are and we're just going to continue to just act like none of this exists. Uh, That Mm -hmm. just builds more resentment and more people just completely falling out of the system as a whole and in particularly when you talk about the midterms now all of a sudden you know wanting to ride on roe versus wade thinking that that's going to be the savior for it all you know uh, president biden came out and said that roe versus wade is on the ballot it's not on the ballot sir in some states it's on the ballot in some states it's not that is not going to be the the blanket that's just all of a sudden going to write the ship uh, in the direction that people want to see this country going people are very consistent and very clear when they talk about the policy that matters to them. And it's not across the board the same. You have black folks who are talking about reparations. You have black folks that are talking about small businesses. You have many groups across the board that are asking for things, healthcare, uh, more opportunities for uh, businesses to grow and so on. And so if they continue to not listen, it actually hurts the local candidates, which is my concern, local candidates who will feel the wrath of the large party that has hurt them. There's a primary going on tomorrow in case folks don't know, a primary with city commissioners, county commissioners all over this country who are nonpartisan, who are not running under a Democrat or Republican ticket who will be hurt because people are just completely fed up and they have lost hope uh, in this system, this two party system that we're all having to be forced to deal with.
0: Hmm. Well, I get the sense that A lot of so many voters, so many people in America are frustrated with the Biden administration, frustrated with their emphasis on certain things, democratic policies, but maybe don't totally trust the Republicans or see some of these Republican candidates, these personalities, who are still very in a Trump mold, reminding them of Trump themselves, who they don't like very much in Arizona, in uh, in Georgia. Um, you know, Dr. Oz is turning out to be a really terrible campaigner. The Republicans look to me like they're actually going to blow a huge opportunity in November. Maybe not. It's time for them to right their own ship. But what is your uh, takeaway from from seeing, you know, Republicans having this big opportunity, but then now they're not polling as well in a lot of these races as they were expected to be polling?
7: Now, let me be very clear. And I I have a lot of uh, conservative friends uh, who have spoke out about this, who are not Trumpers, uh, who have always been frustrated before Trump about how there's been an opportunity to talk uh, to other voters, particularly black voters, cause that's obviously what I speak the most about. And they've never taken the opportunity as far as we're concerned. I will not to say never, cause that's an absolute, but for the most part of it, they haven't taken the opportunity. They've always had to talk to people about policy to win people over. And so now when people have to make a decision between Democrat or Republican, not being a Democrat or being uh, critical of the Democrat Party like I have been does not mean that I'm going to automatically just choose uh, the Republican Party or choose to be a Trumper. It doesn't work that way. Just because I don't want to date this guy doesn't mean automatically I'm going to date you. I'm looking for a new love. In the words of Mary J. Blige, I'm looking for a new love, a real love, and somebody that's actually going to take the time to keep their promises. So most folks, I believe, independent are like me, in the middle, non party affiliated voting for their county commissioners, voting for their city commissioners, voting for their state reps, voting for their their uh, their uh local positions and looking to that. And actually that's really what we should be focused on. Those are the things that affect your everyday life. Hmm. People who say, you know, I don't do politics. I always remind them, you may not do politics, but politics most certainly does you. And so the <laughs> Democrat Party and the Republican Party, to a lot of folks are just trash let's just be honest about their trash so there's a lot that they have to do to build the bench and i'm not so much concerned about what the republicans are doing i know people want me to be concerned about that but 90 percent of my community votes for the democrat party so i have to always look at what is affecting my community the most and that's the democrat party and so that's why i hold them more so accountable Uh, than i do republicans because they just bottom line just don't even do outreach at all if we just want to be honest about it i've never seen a republican come to my church uh, come to my school or uh, mix and mingle uh, with the folks that i uh, engage with and that has allowed democrats to take advantage of my community because they have not had another option to choose
1: That is one of the things that bothers me the most is that the Democrats take Black voters for granted and the Republicans ignore them. And especially in this election cycle, when you have rampant crime, no border security and and a recession, right? All of these things that are impacting the Black community disproportionately, to not have the Republicans showing up and saying, we're going to get you the things you need. We're going to get you safe streets. We're going to get your kids into good schools. We're going to secure the border and protect working class jobs like in this moment if the republicans are not showing up in the black community and saying we're not going to take you for granted we're not going to ignore you anymore then they deserve to lose as far as i'm concerned
7: absolutely and guess what else democrats who continue to show up uh just around election time they deserve to lose too so okay. i guess we're just going to see you know how the chips <laughs> fall <laughs> them fall where they may uh, but there are many conservative policies. Uh, I, I won't say conservative, I'll say Republican, because there is a difference between conservative and Republican. I always try to let people know that. Small black business, for example, uh, mm-hmm. when you talk about you know opportunities uh, to bring economics about the bag, if you will, uh, to talk about that to the black community. No, they don't talk about it. And the Democrat Party, particularly far left, they never talk about small business at all. They think that they can only run on social issues, and that's just not the case. And let me also say this, black men are continuing to be ignored uh, in the Democrat Party, and there you'll hear people say, oh, black men have to vote and have to do better. Let me correct the record right now. They vote. They vote in large numbers. It's not about blaming the voter. It's about blaming the leaders that continue to come lie to the voters and then get lazy and do a piss-poor job of keeping their promises, and we don't hold them accountable enough, and there should be consequences and repercussions uh, for folks that continue to come to our community and lie. But what other option do they have if there's not another choice? I can't want to date you if you don't at least... take me on a date at all. And Republicans (laughs) just don't do that uh, Mm -hmm. at all in in my community. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Teslin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. We have some breaking news for you. Dr. Anthony Fauci will retire this December. According to the Washington Post, Fauci is stepping down after more than 50 years in government service. He leaves his post at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Fauci has been at the NIAID since 1984 and started out at the National Institute of Health in 1968 as a 27-year-old doctor. President Biden has commented on the news saying that, quote, during my time as vice president, I worked closely with Dr. Anthony Fauci on the United States' response to Zika and Ebola. I came to know him as a dedicated public servant and a steady hand with wisdom and insight honed over decades at the forefront of some of our most dangerous and challenging public health crises. Biden commended Fauci on his handling of COVID and said that the United States is stronger, more resilient and healthier because of him, so we've kind of been waiting uh, for this announcement. It's something that you know Fauci has teased on a number of occasions, uh, n- noting that he is planning to step down from his public health position in government, but you know clarifying that he is not going away or retiring entirely. I think he plans to probably speak beyond television, have a kind of media career. Um, you know, while he's still healthy and energetic and able to do so he's he's quite old at this point but and, and which he acknowledged but I think, He has thinks he has a a few more years as a public health advocate in the public health space, though not uh, a member of the government. So you know it's interesting. And the New York Times profile of him I was just reading notes that you know this was a fairly non-controversial figure, uh, or non-political or non-partisan figure for so much of his very long career. This is a stunningly long time in government service, then now at the very end, you know, becomes associated with uh, these lockdown measures, social distancing, masking, things that I have been very critical of, that you've been very critical of. And then, of course, you know, ultimately the major question, which is, does this research, is this research, he has been such an advocate, an advocate of the gain of function research and our funding of it, did that have something to do with the pandemic in the first place? A question I think we're still uh, trying to get answers to.
1: In fact, a question that you yourself posed to him in our interview with While him and did him. not we exactly. did not right. answer. <laughs> we are answer, right, exactly, like most of the questions we asked him. Um, the New York Times is reporting that um, Dr. Fauci has been working on a memoir, um, and in an interview last year, he said he was precluded from contracting with a publisher while he was still employed by the government. So, you know, I'm sure he wants to sell his memoir. I'm sure he wants to sort of keep that conversation going. Um, I, I will say, um, you know, so during our interview with him, you know, I believe we asked him about, we got to ask him about six questions, right? We only got 15 minutes, and we each asked him, a version, each of the questions was a version of, is there anything you would have done differently? Is there anything you regret? Can you admit to making any mistakes? And he really couldn't. It was very shocking for a person who claims that he represents science to totally, you know, throw out the scientific method where you learn from your mistakes. And he just couldn't admit to having done anything wrong. And it's so interesting because former White House COVID response coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, told CBS News yesterday that the U.S. government hasn't learned from its mistakes made during the initial days of the pandemic. So let's take a look at that.
8: Well, I think what just was so disturbing to me about monkeypox is a lot of the issues that got us into the ditch with COVID were repeated. Those mistakes were repeated with monkeypox not adequate testing early on not making tests available in every community that you knew was at risk i mean we had the roadmap of who was at risk we should have immediately made it tests available through the gay and bisexual network they are very responsible people they're very knowledgeable about prophylaxis and preventing disease because they've been doing it for decades. This is a highly informed group. If they had communicated to that group, if they had provided testing, if they had provided vaccines to all of them in May, we wouldn't have this problem in August. And so five months had gone by, just like what happened with COVID, lack of preparation, lack of engagement, lack of utilization of the tools that we had in real time to prevent this
0: It's a massive and continues to be a massive indictment of the public health bureaucracy of the CDC and the FDA that they, they screwed this up again. The exact same types of problems, uh, you know, the FDA taking too long to allow the vaccine that was in this warehouse to be rolled out because they hadn't inspected it. They weren't prepared for this. Um, same issues with testing. Uh, recall, of course, that the CDC in the early days of the COVID outbreak, you know, centralized testing outlawed the kind of testing that, that other private labs had come up with. And then, and, and didn't sign off on that. They signed off on only their own tests, which then did not work. Which then actually had suffered from from, from massive failures. So it's really, uh, it really uh, is an indictment of the public health, uh, the government component of the public health uh, uh, response to this pandemic. So you know, the, the one hand, figures like Dr. Fauci want to say, you know, put your trust in the officials. The bad people in our society are people who cast doubt. On the experts, on the government, on the officials, and and he's become very you know far ranging in that criticism. He recently, in an interview, talked about you know the, the the Fauci effect, which he described as the this inspirational figure he provides for people to become involved in science because they're hungering for objective truth. And you know he and then he likens that to uh, he contrasts that with like the people involved on January sixth and, and all sorts of things. So he has certainly leaned it you know he maybe to, it wasn't entirely. His doing to become this politicized figure, but he has by now leaned totally into it. He knows he's, you know, a saint for uh, for team blue and a sinner for team red. And he's just, you know, totally leaned into that. But then then it's very rich to hear him complain about the politicizing of the science.
1: No, definitely. That was so inappropriate while still in this job to bring up January 6th. Like, Dr. Fauci, nobody cares what you think about that. But what you're doing there by saying, A, I represent the science, and B, I am on the side against January 6th, is essentially saying that Team Blue, you know, science belongs to us, or what Pat what you call science is just another version of, you know, politicized democratic messaging, which is, of course, like the huge problem here. I will say, I feel a little bit like what um, Dr. Birx was saying when she com- she's comparing the monkeypox failure to the COVID failures. To me, that rang a little bit false, a little bit like when we asked Dr. Fauci if he would do anything different, and he said he would have been more stringent in the beginning, right? It would have been right. more masking, right? The, the failure of the early days, not the early days of the COVID pandemic when nobody knew anything, but by right, two months in, three months in. The failure at that point was to have a virologist giving public policy recommendations Mm -hmm. because he has no idea how crowds work. He has no idea what makes people trust things. He has no idea um, what convinces people of things. And so he came out there as the sort of coordinator of um, this massive response and ended up politicizing the number one thing that needed to not be politicized. The big mistake was not listening to the American people, not allowing people to tell you what they needed, which they were doing very loudly. There was just a sort of total ignoring of that. And, and what we saw is that that, that that was what ended the pandemic. The pandemic didn't end because Dr. Fauci was like, well, you know, I guess we can ease up. No, it ended because the American people said, we're done with this. And the CDC leading from behind finally last week followed along with where the American people had arrived at on their own. Um, you know, of course they had backing in red states from their, from from the authorities there. But so I think that there's the, very different um, what's happening, mean, of course, yes, testing failures at the micro level, there are some similarities there. But the real problem, as you say, Robbie, is um, the way that the authorities beclown themselves Mm -hmm. by themselves politicizing their own work and making it impossible for half of the nation to trust them.
0: And of course, Fauci claims, you know, when we asked him and and other times, he'll say, well, I didn't lock anything down. I just advised this and then it was (laughs) followed, but but it's, which is such a ridiculous thing to say because he's, he, he advised it and then demonized and stigmatized anyone who argued against it as anti-science. So then it, it was everyone went along with it in, in in jurisdictions where they're you know loyal to a kind of Team Blue mentality. And he can say, oh, but I didn't technically, you know, f- he didn't actually write the law or sign the law or give the government order. It was just it was just advice and guidance. I think uh, I think that rang a little bit hollow for me and uh, for our viewers. Uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll see. I'm sure we, this will not, by no means will this be the last we hear from, uh, from Dr. Fauci. He will still be in the public eye. Uh, he'll probably, in fact, he'll probably feel like he has a freer hand to criticize probably the right and you know move off the narrow subject of COVID than he does uh, even right now. So we will, we will have to see, but we'll have more rising uh, in just a minute. CNN's Brian Stelter had his last episode of Reliable Sources this Sunday. The show was canceled by CNN, possibly as part of major shakeups that might be coming to the network, uh, given its new leadership, new management structure. Uh, Stelter had a last show featuring uh, Carl Bernstein, was one of the guests who talked about the need for for media channels to be more frank about referring to Donald Trump as a criminal. Let's watch
4: line in the book, it's about what I learned as a 16, 17, 18 year old going to work in journalism, is the line that I was taught by great reporters covering civil rights. And that is that the truth is not neutral. The truth is not neutral. That doesn't mean that we, we have to be fair in all we cover. We have to give acknowledgement to two sides. We have to be judicious, but not judicial. I know there's been a lot, of, a lot of angst about, for instance, calling Donald Trump, not on, on this network, but all over, a criminal. Well, you know, we called Nixon a criminal president in reporting on Watergate. He, he, in fact, he never was convicted of a crime, but he was a criminal president. Donald Trump is a serial liar, as I once called him, on the air, and I said to myself, I hope that doesn't sound pejorative, because that's, and I reported, what most Republicans in the Senate of the United States regard him as. So I think we've got to do a better job explaining to our readers and our viewers what we do and how we do it, and at the same time, the bottom line has got to be the best obtainable version of the truth, and in fact the truth is not neutral ask yourself this question is a lynching neutral i've covered those kinds of stories it's not neutral it's not neutral you know uh
2: yeah i didn't know if the former president's name was going to come up so early in the in the hour but I, it's appropriate
0: <laughs> didn't know if the former president's name would come up uh uh bacha what uh, what did you make of that interview i thought it was uh kind of indicative of an approach that is not working so well for that channel, but uh, what do you think? I think
1: it is blasphemy to use lynching in that context. I'm sorry, like I'm religious and like, it is blasphemous to, um, to, to minimize the memory and the history in such a way that you're comparing lynching to what? to what are Donald Trump's crimes that Carl Bernstein believes lying? Lying is now supposed to be a crime, right? He says we should call Trump a a criminal. And then what is his example of his crimes? Oh, he's a serial liar. So now the leftist view is Mm -hmm. um, lying should be a crime and that's comparable to lynching. It is so disgusting. And it is so indicative of the problem with the leftist liberal mainstream media, which is they are high on their virtue, high on the idea that they are the ones who should be giving the American people information, you know, that's neutral, right? Or that's objective, when all they're doing is pushing a politicized party line and not just any politicized party line, but one that has immiserated the working class of all races, of all parties. That is what Trump represents and they will not contend with that because it threatens their position in the elites, right? It it Mm -hmm. threatens their position as the purveyors of quote-unquote truth. I'm sorry, truth does not have a liberal bias. In fact, the opposite might be the case. That's what the American people are increasingly saying today. So that that clip, that Bernstein quote, is just, just so deplorable and really embodies like everything that's wrong with the liberal mainstream media today.
0: I think it's fine to colloquially call Trump a criminal and Nixon a criminal, and Joe Biden and Obama and Bush <laughs> and Clinton and probably all the rest of them have done uh, have done things that colloquially criminally are bad. Uh, in addition to some of them, you know, committing actual obvious crimes. Um, that's it's the selective approach that that bothers people that has become part and parcel of this of that channel's uh, specific brand I think and that there's not enough people you know tuning who want especially as Trump Exits uh, well, maybe is not exiting, but it, you know, fades from the uh, from the the spotlight, which is not what they want. They want him in the spotlight because they need him there. They need him there uh, so much of the mainstream media does because they built an audience that really only cares about that is following Trump developments with the expectation that it ends with him behind bars or you know vanquish the kind of liberal resistance narrative, uh, which is. <laughs> Not happening and they're going to be let down over and over again about it totally. but um, you know i and, and, i yeah it, it's fine. it's the whole the whole idea because yes it, it is true i mean it, it's sort of obviously true right that yes you don't need to the, the present all. There's always two sides that need to be aired out. Yeah, right. Yes, the, we don't give equal time to like the flat earthers or something. Uh, there are there are content decisions made. There are, there are judgment calls made by journalists all the time. What good journalists do is recognize when there is some legitimate criticism of a mainstream idea that do, that warrants being paid attention to or reported on or having a. a well, an eloquent, well-educated representative of that view to give them some time to discuss it. That that approach is beneficial because sometimes the mainstream narrative is wrong. That's been true of foreign policy. That's been true of COVID. It's been true of all sorts of things. So if you're just myopically in this, no, there's just there's just the truth. Well, of course there's just the truth, but we don't all know what that is. And we all we all get things wrong. We all have biases, even if we try really hard to work against them. So 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 it's good practice for a journalist to curate the habit the hobby of saying well what would someone who disagrees with me think what would be the best version of their argument is it worth giving some attention to that letting people hear from it and will it be that the truth is maybe somewhere in between or a little bit more their direction than i thought first or maybe totally in their direction as in the case with you know like the iraq war the the um some some covid mitigation effort, efforts other things uh, we can come up with tons more if you know if we sat here the, so much of the the russia collusion uh, um, uh, thinking falling up you know, collab- a very popular mainstream media conspiracy that almost entirely fell apart. So, you know, we could do that all day, but it's it's the right habit of mind for journalists to think these things through a little bit more. And uh, there there was Carl Bernstein, unfortunately, giving no indication that he subscribes to the, what I would call the more kind of responsible or nuanced view of how we arrive at what the truth is, because we don't agree. So we have to look for it a little oh, bit.
1: 100%. 100%. And the reason they do that is because they don't want to anger their audience. Mm-hmm. And further on in that interview, Brian Stelter says to Carl Bernstein, and, and we report the truth even when it's uncomfortable, right? Even when it's uncomfortable. And Birds, yes, even when it's uncomfortable. And it's such a farce because these people never ever say anything that would upset their very elite mm-hmm. progressive audience so they are under this misconception that they are these brave fighters for taking on trump when the truth is they they never ever say anything that they think that their audience is going to 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 not like or or, or disagree with and so you know they take on this paper tiger in the version of in the form of trump right and and you're right they're addicted to it their biggest fear is that ron desantis is they're gonna have to actually mm-hmm. you know critique actual Policy. Um, and it, it's just so disappointing. You, and, and that clip is again, I just say so perfect because, you know, he comes out there and says, we have to tell the truth. Well, what is the truth? The truth is, is that because Trump is a liar, he's a criminal who's as bad as people who lynched people, right? Like you think that's an objective truth? Of course it's not an objective truth. That's that's not any kind of truth, right? That's just Democratic propaganda, mm-hmm. you know, the Democratic Party line, and you know that's that's uh, that that's what they consider that. This is why CNN is struggling, is yeah. because unlike MSNBC that said, look, we're you know they didn't say this, but you know essentially have just accepted their role as being spokespeople for 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 the Democratic Party. CNN is still under the impression that they're doing this kind of brave journalism right. while essentially doing the same thing, just parroting those those talking points.
0: Well, although we've been very, uh, we've been very critical of uh, of that show and some of its guests, uh, I do, I do have to thank uh, Brian. You know, Brian Stelter did have me on the show a couple times and did have you on. Yes. So unlike a lot of people on the mainstream media who will never deviate from the kind of uh, bringing on you know, resistance type guests or you know, former, former FBI, former, so many former G-men become, uh, have found a home on these mainstream networks. Uh, I, I was grateful to be on and, and share my perspective. And I know uh, y- you, you had a really great, really fiery clip that I think it was beneficial for that audience to see. So uh, I'm, to, to the extent that there, there's gonna possibly be even less of that going on in, in mainstream media, I think, uh, I think the loss of the show is in that sense a shame. So, uh, so there's yeah, that. Yeah,
1: although Fox News is still hosting, you know, they'll have Democrats on all the time. Mm. So,
0: <laughs> that is happening somewhere. And they have Democrats <laughs> watching.
1: <laughs> Too true.
0: All right, we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. I have to admit how wrong I was about the Patriot Act and the Iraq War. All those people from Glenn Greenwald to Matt Taibbi to Dave Smith to Kat Timpf, you know, I dismissed there are ominous warnings that when the government, what the
2: government could do to Muslims, they could do to you. And I never believed that, but I'm wrong. And so I'm eating crow.
0: Well, And it tastes delicious. Mm, that was Fox News' Greg Gutfeld admitting he was wrong about the Iraq War, something the mainstream media figures, mainstream media figures often struggle to do, or if they do it ever or at all. Matt Taibbi even responded to the clip, thanking Gutfeld for his admission, as did uh, Dave Smith, who's one of one of my people, libertarians. So is Kat Timpf, by the way. Uh, so, yeah, you know, and I, and Greg Gutfeld has always had um, some uh, libertarian sensibilities on a number of issues, on, on drug issues, actually. He's been very libertarian on those issues and some other things. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised to hear him say the Iraq war was wrong and the Patriot Act was wrong. Actually, I would have thought he possibly already had held those views. Maybe he did. He's just, you know, announcing them for the first time. But, you know, it gets to something that I wish more conservatives would take seriously, especially now that we're hearing all this kind of anti, anti-intelligence anti agencies, anti-law enforcement furor in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago raid. You know, I'm seeing defund the FBI, et cetera, from, you know, major, from from Republican political figures and Republican commentators. And I'm like... And, and actually, I become a little bit cynical because when push comes to shove, the Patriot Act gets reauthorized and voted for by all of these people. I mean, this has happened, to, and this is right. This happened with the um, was it Carter Page? Was that his name? The uh, the the FISA abuse when mm-hmm. Trump was in office. All that stuff, and then they still they still reauthorize the Patriot Act when it comes up for a vote. So there's a lot of hypocrisy from many GOP officials on this kind of stuff. They'll say that, yes, there's a deep state and law enforcement is out to get Trump and Trump supporting people, but then they, then they fund them, then they, then they fund this entire apparatus. So it, it feels like they're just saying that, but they don't really believe it in some, in some cases.
1: Um, I think Greg believes it though. Uh, Greg you believes know, it. I, yes, I, I, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, I, that was such a beautiful clip because, especially, I love what he said at the end. I'm eating crow, and it tastes fabulous. It tastes great. Whatever he said, that is exactly right. Journalists have lost the taste, the sweet taste of being able to admit. That you were wrong. I mean, that willingness to admit that you were wrong about something is the thing that gives me personally the courage to, you know, take big swings at things, to develop opinions about things, because I know that if I find counter evidence, if I find that something I said was wrong, I can admit it. You know, that is the thing that makes us worthy of the trust of the American people. And unfortunately, like you said, Robbie, so few people in the media are willing to do this. And I Mm -hmm. so respect that Greg went out there and said that. And very interestingly, uh, uh, it, Tucker Carlson had a special called Patriot Purge about January 6th Okay, the the special very heavily implied that the FBI was very heavily involved in January six. Whatever you think about that, the special was full of criticism, implied and explicit about how we treated Muslims. You know, in the what? wake of, of September 11th about Guantan- Guantanamo Bay. I mean, what does it say to you that the biggest critics now of you know the way that we treated Muslims and you know the way that we treated these prisoners of war? The way that we sort of the Patriot Act, you know, throwing away civil liberties, that these people are the biggest influencers on the right. Tucker Carlson, the number one rated show, the five where Greg Gutfeld made those comments, the number one rated show. They're sort of in competition with each other. Uh, You know, Greg Gutfeld's show itself is the the number one rated show on late night television, right? These are the number one rated shows. And interestingly, they have anti-war, civil liberties oriented right wing populists making these very important points that you used to be able to see on The Daily Show. You used to be able to see, right, on these shows that were very critical of things like this. And, you know, as I said in my radar, where is the anti-war left? They're they're busy, you know, saying, you know, calling Trump a Putin right. stooge. That's, that's what they think their job is
8: now.
0: And, and the point that Gutfeld observed should not be glossed over, that the, they can do this, they, they've done this to Muslims. They have they have really done this to Muslims. There's so many cases of FBI entrapment of Muslim individuals who were not actually, you know, maybe they were saying edgy things online or on social media, but were not it, you know, inclined toward actually organizing terrorism, had no, had no way to do so, were not in communication with actual terrorist networks, had no resources to, you know, maybe they were saying very anti-U.S. things, but it, they were no threat whatsoever. And then what happens is someone approaches them online, uh, a, a law enforcement official pretends to be uh, someone who then actually eggs them on, or it says, here's how you would buy the weapons, puts them in— there was no crime being committed until the FBI gets involved, instructs them in how to commit it, and then they arrest that person. That is exactly what happened with the Gretchen Whitmer so-called kidnapping, the governor of Michigan. It, ha- it has emerged since then that so many of the witnesses, so many of the people who, who were you know, organizing that uh, initiative were being instructed, paid, paid by the FBI— to organize this initiative. It never would have gone forward. They didn't actually end up even kidnapping her. But the surveilling of her house that they did was done on the recommendation of someone being paid by the FBI to tell them to do that. So it absolutely happened. So I And I understood this. I understand why some people uh, wonder or have suspected if something similarly was going on with January 6th. I do think January 6th is different. I was there covering it on the ground. What I Saw unfold what I saw happen was not actually organized enough to have been, Mm. in my view, caused Mm. by anyone. It it was a spont—it really did look like a spontaneous crowd decision, sort of like you know when things go wrong at a concert or another public venue where people panic. That's what it it looked very spur of the moment to me. uh, The the actual crime that was the smashing of the windows, the going in the Capitol, some and some and also some of the people I saw do that are are. Our actual right wing figures, not people I I think were being like hoodwinked by law enforcement. So I understand why people make that claim based on that's why I reject that claim, though, for for January 6th, because what I saw happen did does not comport with that uh, with that framing. But it it is it did emerge in the Gretchen Whitmer uh, kidnapping situation. So many, so many FBI Mm -hmm. agents uh, involved. So. Yeah,
1: and you've, you've been covering that since uh, my first time on uh, on Rise. Yep. You did your radar on that. Um, so everyone should check that out. And, and um, you know, I think it was last week or the week before um, you guys had on Darvio Morrow to talk about how, you know, all of the lessons that the right is now learning about, you know, the FBI, you know, the black community has known for a really long time. Um, but speaking of bad takes on the Iraq war, friend of the show, David Sirota, found this gem on Masterclass. President George W. Bush teaches authentic leadership. Sirota commented saying, I finally found it, a thing that singularly encapsulated how stupid we've made our culture. Uh,
0: what do you make of this, Robbie? I'm not a big Masterclass fan. In fact, I think I respect people less when their Masterclass ad shows up. Now, I switched to YouTube Premium largely to stop getting ads for Masterclass. For some, whatever the, the algorithm really thought, for some reason, I would be interested in signing up for one of those things. And uh, I, I am not. I do not want one of them, so now i don 't see those ads anymore, but uh, you know uh, I think if George W. Bush was maybe giving painting lessons, that would be a justifiable master class but uh, yeah, lessons on on leadership I mean, it just goes to show you how much he 's become a rehabilitated figure for mainstream liberals because uh, you know he is perceived to not be a, yeah, he, and, and is not his family is not pro-Trump, is not aligned with Trump, so there, there, can only be, there can only be two sides. If you're not with Trump, you must be against him, and thus you can be rehabilitated in the mainstream media's eyes.
1: Yeah, it is very interesting also now seeing, um, you know, Liz Cheney in her humiliating defeat talk about, you know, floating a potential uh, uh, presidential run, you know, the idea that somehow there are enough Democrats who would vote for somebody, you know, who's like anti-abortion just because she stood up to Trump. Honestly, it is a good question, Um, although I don't think it's going to go so very, very well for her. Um, I do want to close out this segment about admitting when you were wrong with a clarification on something I said a couple weeks ago. Um, about the the conflagration between Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, I said that there was footage of a rocket falling in the Jabalia refugee camp and that um, Israel claimed that that footage was of a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket that had fallen within Gaza. But it turns out that um, there were two rockets that fell in Jabalia. One of them was that footage and um, the, 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 the civilian count on that is seven to eight. I'm still getting clarification on that. Um, But the second rocket fell on Sunday, and um, there's now reporting from Haaretz that that was an Israeli rocket, and that was the one that fell in the cemetery and killed five children. And the IDF so far is not contesting the reporting that that was an Israeli rocket. Mm. And so I just wanted to clarify that, that there were two rockets and that Israel is not actually, I don't believe, I just checked. but not contesting that it was their rocket that killed those five children. Which, we, are- we
0: did, uh, we, we, for anyone who wants to hear more about that, we did. Uh, Brianna and I talked, with, I believe it was Brianna, talked with Katie Halper I think last week, uh, about uh, that issue, Bacha is by far the most honest person in the entire <laughs> news media industry. People so disinclined to admit uh, to admit when they get the, the, the things wrong or they misread something, but not not Bacha. Um I, sh- I should say, what, what is, what's something I got wrong? I I did I did, uh, I did uh, you know I, I COVID early days. I uh, w- absolutely did not. I could not comprehend, you know, the scale of death we were about to experience from the disease. I remember thinking, "There's no," I, I just couldn't even conceive of it. Like, like we're all going to be, well, we're all going to be locking down for weeks and months and years because of a disease like that. I, it's never happened in my lifetime. I can't imagine it, but it's, it's exactly, it's exactly what happened. A lot of my early COVID predictions. Very, very, very bad. So <laughs> when I put on my little pundit's hat, um, I do know, do know better than everyone else. But we try to give viewers unbiased, you know, fair news. Uh, not uh, totally unbiased because we have perspectives, but we try to bring on a variety yeah. of perspectives so that you're hearing, you know, the best arguments for each different one uh, from uh, different hosts and guests, etc. So
1: Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna Joy Gray will be back with you all, and I will see you next
0: week. Mm. Always love having you here, Bacha. Thank you so much. Uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Got that almost memorized by now, maybe tomorrow. Uh, OK, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we will see you soon.